This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily, and this is the week of October 18th, uh, with my Mbiala hosting. Um, I guess eventually we'll get Ken Jennings at some point when she has to film her other show on a tape day, but uh, another week with Maya Bialik. And I feel like she's really growing into that role. I do too. I feel I'm noticing her less. And I think that's kind of the point. Yep. The contestants and the material are supposed to be the the stars of Jeopardy. That was, that was always Alex's approach. And I really admired that about him. You know, I think it takes... It takes competence and professionalism and like security to kind of step back and and be like, oh yeah, no, I'm not the star. Yeah, and I feel like yeah, she's she's growing into it, and uh, and we're we're starting to feel less kind of the uh, the newness and like her newness in the role, and you know, I I feel like we're, she's sort of settling into a rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on Monday, October eighteenth. Uh, We have the contestants Anna Wright, a barista from Denton, Texas, Adam George, a law clerk from Brooklyn, New York, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose five-day cash winnings total $117,700. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories Geographic Stupid Answers, Bird Brains, Blacksmithing, Disney Songs, A Ford Fiesta, and That's a Car Model. Do they still make the Ford Fiesta? Probably not, right? I, I don't know. think so. Time to find out. I think they still do. Maybe not. It's 2019 the last one. Looks like yes. On the Ford website, thanks Fiesta drivers. It's been a great ride. Oh, never mind. Looks like they have recently retired the Ford Fiesta. Since 1976. Wow. Shocking. Anyway, the Ford the Ford Fiesta category was about people, people named, named Ford. Ford. Yeah. The Ford Fiesta car is that car that you get from a uh, rental uh, mm. company when you mm. don't specify what kind of car you want. <laughs> Am I supposed to be specifying what kind of car I want? You can. Huh. Okay. I mean, depending on the company. I don't know. The last time I rented a car was 2012. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. I hate renting cars because I have children and often when I'm renting a car these days, I am also trying to manage sometimes rented car seats and always installing a car seat into an unfamiliar vehicle. And that Mm -hmm. is just, it's absolute misery. It's the worst. While also wrangling children in a parking lot. (laughs) <laughs> children who yeah. have just been traveling. Yes. <laughs> I believe that I believe you can uh, find a scene about that in Dante's Inferno. <laughs> I don't quite remember which canto that is, but yeah, that seems familiar. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've talked about the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem, The Mighty Blacksmith, like a bunch of times. Have we talked about that a bunch of times? We have talked about it enough for me to remember that. I, like, I feel like maybe it was, like, in a Stephen Grade quiz. 
Maybe. Might, I, that I, might it's be been it. on the podcast for sure. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Stephen, if you're listening, remind us how, whether that was you who, yeah. who, uh, who, who started us talking about the mighty blacksmith. Also, Stephen, yeah. how you doing? We haven't, we haven't talked in a while. So yeah. Hope you're doing well. Um, so yeah, that, that was a triple stumper at the $800 level of blacksmithing where there was a, there was a picture, like an illustration and then uh, a line from the poem and you were supposed to come up with the poet. And I did, although I think I learned that first making this podcast. So that's fun. There we go. Yeah. We have achieved the thing we set out to do, which mm-hmm. is learning something. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the bird brains category at the $800 level. Jonathan finds it. He's at 3400 at this point. It's pick number 28. Uh, he's not in the lead. Adam is at 4200 and Anna is at 1800 He wagers only 1000 Gets the clue, scientists think the corvids, including the American and carrion this, are the smartest of all birds. And he thinks for a moment, but gets it correct with what is a crow. Mm-hmm. Corvid is yes. crow. Yes, indeed. I've been seeing a lot of articles about how smart crows are recently, mm-hmm. and I'm a little bit freaked out. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're quite smart. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if at some point an animal, you know, other animals become like truly sentient and they mm-hmm. just know to lay low because if we figure out that they're too smart, we'll just kill them all. Mm-hmm. Like maybe they just watch and they're like, yeah, we're going to, we're just, just going to chill. We're just going to call. Yeah. We'll just keep calling over here and, you know, live in the good life. Until we rise. No. Yes. Um- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, that's inevitable. Yeah. Happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, At the end of the Jeopardy round, Jonathan and Adam, uh, sorry, Adam, um, he has an exclamation mark at the end of his name (laughs) on his his podium. Uh, They are tied at 4,400 and Anna is at 800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, histories, mysteries, Swedish writers, theater companies, what a beautiful name, fictional Africa, and verbiage with A-G-E in quotation marks at the end of each response. Mm-hmm. I learned something of another type of poet uh, in the beautiful name category at the $2,000 level. Um, I should say I learned this on the podcast. Checking multiple cultural boxes, this name signifying beauty in Japanese also belonged to a Muslim mystic poet. And I got that correct with who who is Rumi. Mm-hmm. And I remember that I learned who Rumi is on the podcast. Yeah. That's a, that's a name to know for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. I enjoyed seeing uh, this little fact at the $1,600 level of fictional Africa. Aaron Sorkin used equatorial kundu on this TV series and then again on the newsroom. Um, and that's the West Wing. Um, and... For the West Wing, they had like a handful of countries that don't actually exist, but sound sort of, you know, linguistically Mm -hmm. like about right so that they could have conflict with other countries or, you know, be dealing with, you know, international diplomacy issues without it being about an actual existing country in the world. Right. Um, uh, The the fictional Middle Eastern country of the West Wing uh, is Kumar. So... Mm. If uh, if you ever if you ever need to have that fact on hand, um, or just you know know that they made up a fictional Middle Eastern country so that they could you know 
almost mm-hmm. go to war with it and whatnot. Right. Um, Daily Devil number two is in the history's mysteries category at the $2,000 level. And Jonathan finds this one at the 14th pick. He's at 34. Nope. He's at 16,000 at this point uh, to Adam's 5,600 and Anna's 3,200. He wagers 2,000. That's the true value of the clue. His clue is a real life drama. This Shakespeare contemporary was killed under mysterious circumstances, May 30th, 1593. And he knows that is Marlowe. Um, Just as any good Jeopardy fan should know at this point. Yeah. I'm sort of surprised they put that at the $2,000 level. I'm just referencing the, uh, the final game of James Holtzauer's run. Mm. And the final Jeopardy there. Yeah. Where the correct response was also Marlowe. Yes. Yes, yes. That's right. That's how I remember. Honestly, that is seared into my brain. Uh, like, I, I would, I did not remember the name Kit Marlowe before that. But after that, I was like, okay, that is a thing I need to know. And it's there forever. All right. Well, I learned it um, from the 1998 classic film Shakespeare in Love. Mm, yeah, still haven't seen it. <laughs> I keep telling you, you watch it and then you know all the information. Sure, sure. That'll be fine. Uh, I'll watch it eventually, I'm sure. (laughs) There's probably better ways to glean that information. Yeah. Anyway, Daily Double number three is in the fictional Africa category at the $800 level. Jonathan finds this one as well. And when you find all three Daily Doubles, gotta hope that you get yourself in a good position. He's up to 24000 at this point, it's pick number 24. Adam's at 5,600, Nana's at 4,800. He wagers 2,000 and gets a clue. Also known as the Golden City, Bernanzana is the capital of this futuristic African nation. And he looks like he's taking a guess when he says, what is Wakanda? And that is correct. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jonathan's in a lock position with 27,600. Adam is at 6,800. <laughs> and so is Anna. They are tied. And we have the final Jeopardy category names on the map and the clue from 1824 to 1825 this hero toured all 24 states and an indiana city was named for him anna did not come up with the correct response she has who is gary uh she's wagered 6799 everything but a dollar so she drops down to one dollar i think generally like if you're if you're tied probably an all or nothing is the is the way to go not really sure yeah yeah if there's a situation where you should wager any i mean especially like tied tied for second with the first person in a lot first place player in a in a lock position you're getting either one thousand or two thousand dollars um and i think zero or everything probably is the is the way to go here but i'm not actually sure what happens with the consolation prizes if the second and third place players tie I think this is determined. I think it's based on who was in who was ahead at the like beginning of double jeopardy hmm. or something okay. like that. So there's there's some kind of you know it's not like <laughs> we split the difference. They both get fifteen hundred or right. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. believe there is a tie breaking mm-hmm. uh, rule. Okay. Anyway, she drops down to a dollar. Adam has who is the Marquis de Lafayette? That is correct. And he has wagered everything. Um, So he's going to land in second place. And Jonathan, uh, like Anna, tried who is Gary. 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 Gary, Indiana. 
Please don't it's a logical. Song. It's a logical guess. Yeah, it's a dude's name. Mm-hmm. Where is that song from? Is it from The Music Man? It is from The Music Man. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, yeah it is. It's super annoying. Uh-huh. The Music Man is full of earworms. Yes, and they're all bad. Sorry. I've been, I've been having a lot of hot takes recently about things that really don't matter. Uh-huh. But I don't think The Music Man is particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> hot takes with a capital T? <laughs> yeah. It rhymes with P. It stands, it stands for, for pool. Putrid music. <laughs> All right. We were, we were talking about Jonathan's Final Jeopardy response. He wagered 2,400. That uh, that drops him down to 25,200. But it also gives him a six-day. Uh, it's his uh, sixth win. So uh, he is a six-day champion as we head into Tuesday. That is right. On Tuesday, we have the contestants Olivia Camisa Frost, a museum professional from Saratoga Springs, New York, Katie Buckner, a teacher from Los Angeles, California, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, who is now six-day winnings up to $142,900. And we have the Jeopardy Round categories, Fortune 500 Fortunes, Monopoly Special Editions, the best game in the world. Part of Darkness. <laughs> We're uh, ready for my hot takes. <laughs> right. The word, uh, each response is made up of the letters in the word darkness. Uh, anus horrib. I'm sorry. Anus horribilis. <laughs> and we're in SNL Celebrity Jeopardy. <laughs> Five Burrows, uh, B-U-R-R-O-S, and New York City. And there was a triple stumper in the Five Burrows category at the $800 level that I'm pretty sure we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, in the book of Numbers, both an angel and the animal itself ask this man why he's beating up on his donkey. Mm-hmm. That's Balaam. Yep. The story of Balaam's ass. Balaam's ass. That's yes. right. Mm-hmm. I loved that five burrows category. It was good. Yeah. It yeah. was it was a night like it was a it was a unique kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Five questions about donkeys. Yep. We had uh some obscure Brothers Grimm story. We had Eeyore, of course. Can't have the have a donkey category without Eeyore, I think. Yeah, without the best character he's, from all of literature. He's great. I love Eeyore. Throwback to to everybody's preteen horse phase. Uh, <laughs> gonna just universalize that with a with a question about Marguerite Henry, who like just like her her whole thing is that she writes like kind of middle grade horse books. They were looking for where the where you find this particular donkey in the, the Grand Canyon. We yeah. had Balaam's ass, and then of course a Midsummer Night's Dream, um, where we had to name who had the the head of an ass. Um, that's uh, Nick Bottom. You know, yeah, everybody's everybody's horse phase because of course mm-hmm. everyone, 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 everyone went through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Emily, I'm sure you knew the first pick of the round. Monopoly Special Edition's $1,000 level, Triforce, Hookshot, and Hylian Shield are tokens in the edition based on this video game franchise. It's The Legend of Zelda. It is The Legend of Zelda. I don't know a whole lot about The Legend of Zelda, which is shocking because I've been privy to uncountable monologues (laughs) about The Legend of Zelda. (laughs) Um. From me. (laughs) No, I think I can count the monologues. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a that's a big favorite <laughs> mm-hmm. among among my children. Nice. Uh, 
Yes. Daily double number one is in the Anis Horribilis category at the $800 level, and Jonathan finds it at the eighth. He's at 2200 at this point to Katie's 1000 and Olivia's 200 He makes it a true daily double, and his clue is, in the space of a few weeks in 1912, Robert Falcon Scott's trek to this landmark ended in death, then Titanic sailed into history. Jonathan struggled with it, tried to come up with something, ended up saying Ayers Rock, that's not correct. Even if it had been correct, like like the buzzer had sounded by the time he said it, so they probably wouldn't have accepted it for that reason. Um, But in any case, it wasn't correct. Uh, The South Pole is the correct answer here. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jonathan's made it back up to the lead, he's at 5,200, Katie's at 3,400, Olivia's at 1,800, and our double Jeopardy categories are world geography, political nicknames, historical figures on film, 20th century English, did I miss anything, and F in science, F in quotation marks. I like to say that category more like F in science. Mm. And I, I kind of feel like the, the contestants also felt that way because four of the five were triple four stumpers. Four out of five, yikes. Yeah. yeah, not not do great. Although I will say they were fairly challenging. Like mm-hmm. I, these were not, these were double jeopardy clues. I, I yep. thought that was, that they yeah. were appropriate. Yeah, the $1,200 level, uh, the lowest temperature at which the vapor of a combustible liquid may briefly ignite is called this. Katie tried what is the freezing point? That's that's not correct. That's, you know, you want to... That's that's kind of the other end. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to come up with something related to flame, um, but uh, the correct response here is flashpoint. Yep. At some point, I'm going to learn the word feldspar and actually remember it, but... Um, <laughs> not today. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the contestants had not either. Um, about 60% of the Earth's crust is made up of this group of glassy minerals was the $1,600 level. Uh, that's mm-hmm. feldspar. Daily double number two is in the 20th century English category at the $800 level. Olivia finds it. She's at... Oh, nope. She's at 1000 uh, Jonathan's at 10,800 and Katie's at 5,400 and she wagers, uh, 1,500. She gets a clue. It first bent a movie, then a script for one, then starting in the 1930s was used in Academy Award categories. And she gets correct with what is a screenplay? Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, was a fun category. And then Olivia also finds Daily Double number three. It's in the Did I Miss Anything category at the $1,600 level. And she finds it at the 18th pick. Uh, she has 3700 at that point to Jonathan's 12800 and Katie's 2600 She wagers 2000 and her clue is maybe worried he'd been forgotten. On his return to England after a long time crusading, he had himself recrowned in 1194. She tries who is William the Conqueror, only off by like 100 years here, which is, you know... In the grand scheme of history, pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. But um, if you listen to my deep dive on the English royal houses... There you go. That would be that would be helpful, and then you would know that this is King Richard the First or King Richard the Lionheart. Mm-hmm. Basically, anytime they're going to ask about a crusading king, I mean, it's, it's Richard. Be. Yep. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Jonathan has another lock game, but he's only at eleven thousand six hundred because Katie is at forty six hundred and Olivia is at nine hundred. This is just a rough game, even even for Jonathan. Like eleven thousand six hundred is not a it's not a huge score for a you know six game champion. This is just rough on him. 
Which, yep. you know, it happens. It happens. It, it, it You get on that stage and things happen. Mm-hmm. So we have the final Jeopardy category, Contemporary Authors. And the clue, he has studied Cordon Bleu cooking, but is known for his 1981 creation of a character with unconventional taste in cuisine. Uh, Olivia guessed, who is Ian Fleming? Which, you know, not a terrible guess. When we find out the correct response gives a certain perspective on James Bond that I did not think about before. James Bond likes his gin bruised. He does. Uh (laughs) Shaken, not stirred. Yes. Ian Fleming is incorrect. Katie wrote, who is Michael Chabon? Chabon, I think Chabon? is how I, how Chabon? I usually... Chabon? He's the author of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a very fun oh. novel. He's better at spelling than me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. Now I'm intrigued. Uh, <laughs> that that's was, also... <laughs> that was one of the things on my little, on my little uh, fun fact card is that I was in a... Um, a spelling bee fundraiser with celebrity oh, contestants. Oh yeah, you've talked, you've mentioned this before. Yeah, yep. yeah. So now I know who is better at spelling than me and, and Which Michael Shabon. Yes, <laughs> um, I, I am better at spelling than Ira Glass and Catherine no. Keener. Yeah, <laughs> I would have thought Ira Glass would be like top of the heap. Oh, you my would goodness. think, right? Yeah, I, I, he 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 talks out loud. That's fair. That's fair. And as we know from Jeopardy, you don't have to know how to spell it if you can That's say right. it. That's mm-hmm. right. So Michael Shavon is also incorrect. Jonathan got it correct with who is Thomas Harris, the author of the Hannibal Lecter books, mm-hmm. Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs and such. And he wagered sixteen hundred, which was not risking his lock, so he moves up to thirteen thousand two hundred. Yep, I remember. I I figured out that we were talking about. Silence of the Lambs, but I couldn't remember who wrote it. Um, Mm -hmm. So good on Jonathan for figuring it out. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Anjali Chidambaram, a financial writer from San Francisco, California. Jack Hodges, a hotel loyalty analyst from Bethesda, Maryland. That's an interesting job title. Yeah. And Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose seven-day cash winnings at this point total $156,100. And our Jeopardy round categories are Boats and Ships, The State of the TV Show, uh, named the state where the show is mainly set, Terms of Love and Endearment, E-mail, that's E in quotation marks, and then male, like, as opposed to female, Inbox, two words, and Drafts. Uh, we start in the state of the TV show at 200, and Anjali, my girl, gets Magnum P.I. Mm-hmm. said in Hawaii. If you have never watched Magnum P.I., I'm not saying watch the whole series, but at least watch, like, an episode. It is it, it is just a cultural thing. Mm, I have not watched Magnum P.I. Mm, Tom Selleck with the, like, half-buttoned Hawaiian shirt and a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Rick and TC and Higgins. It's just, there's, it's just so, it's like every trope. You know, it's mm. like, yeah. it's every trope. It's it's worth a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I have watched the entire series and watched it when I was like 14 years old, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I enjoyed the drafts category, which was about, you know, things that got changed between the first draft of kind of noted literary works and their, and their final versions. Mm-hmm. Um We had a question about a Tolkien character who in the first draft was supposed to stab and kill Smog and then nearly drown in the dragon's blood, Bilbo Baggins. Be a very different Um, ending. 
Yeah. And we found out at the $800 level that originally Veruca Salt's character was named Elvira Antwistle, and Mike TV's <laughs> character was Herpes Trout. Ooh, what a name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the email category at the $800 level, I remembered something that I just learned, like, that we just talked about what, two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Um, three maybe a, three yeah whenever two, it was two, yeah, yeah. Two, or, two or three weeks ago a world war ii vet this slain naacp field secretary in mississippi was buried with full military honors at arlington and i remembered that that is medgar evers because mm-hmm. i have looked a little bit more into medgar evers and i need to continue doing so yeah yay we're learning yay we are learning um should i go to the daily double yeah daily double number one is in the boats and ships category at the six hundred dollar level uh, Jonathan finds it at pick number 22. He is at 6,600. Jack is at 400. Anjali is at 3,200. Any wagers, 1,600. He gets the clue. In 1854, Flying Cloud, this type of merchant ship, sailed from New York City to San Francisco in 89 days, a record that stood for 135 years. And Jonathan probably doesn't know a ton about boats and ships because um, he just guesses what's a rum runner. Uh, the type of boat is a clipper. Clippers are notably fast. Mm. That is, that's how, to, in my, to my mind, that's how you would be able to get there. Because, like, otherwise, that's an obs- extremely obscure clue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, you, if you can't just put together, like, it's a fast ship, so it must be a clipper. Uh, yeah, I did, I did not have that piece of information at all. Th- that was a tough category. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Th- yeah. Three of the five were not correctly answered. So, uh, kind of understandable. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jonathan is still in the lead at 6,400. Jack is at 600. And Anjali is at 3,200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Bridal Waves, the Western Hemisphere. I want to suck your blood, which Mayim gave it a little bit of, uh, you know, a treatment. But really, you know, we were looking. I, I don't know. I had a moment of like, did I want her to go all out like Alex would have, or do I want her to respect that space? You know, mm, yeah. I don't know. I'm st- jury's still out. I don't know. Uh, then we have mythology, staring at movies, staring spelled like stairs, and two consonants, then one vowel. I like when they put together a category like the staring at movies category, which uh, staring, you know, like stairs, where you like, you know, you've you've never really thought about movie scenes that involve stairs before but you know sure (laughs) but i could picture every single one of these Mm -hmm. as they came up right yeah uh the staircase Uh on the titanic with yep rose and jack Mm -hmm. the staircase maybe maybe not all of the listeners can picture the uh uh, eight hundred dollar clue. I'll build a stairway to paradise as a classic number in this musical from gene kelly with gene kelly in france that's american in paris Mm -hmm. um that's a little bit older but the other ones, Rocky, Home Alone, The Untouchables. Oh, iconic scene from The Untouchables. I don't think I've seen The un- the Untouchables. Oh, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner. Oh. Yeah. Mm. All right. I'll put it on the list. I don't think I've watched it in like 15 years. Teenage Me really liked it. Mm. Yeah. They were a great, great set of movies. Mm-hmm. I, I, liked, I liked this category. It was fun. Yeah. Daily Double number two is at the... $1,600 level of mythology, and Jonathan finds this one at the eighth pick. He has 13200 at this point to Jack's 2200 and Anjali's 3200 And he wagers 3200 Uh, So if he's wrong, he'll drop down to 10000 an even 10000 
I don't know if that's how he did his math or, you know, how he made his wager. That's sort of the thing that stood out to me. Um, I think he mm. likes working with round numbers. Seems that um, right. Yeah. He gets the clue with two faces. This Roman god had an eye on both the past and the future. Um, and he knows that one is Janus. Mm-hmm. And I um, imagine most Jeopardy listeners or watchers know that, that that's Janus. But if you didn't, that is where the name of January January. Comes from. Yes. This piece of information was steered into my brain via a children's book called The Castle in the Attic. It's a great book. Loved that book. Daily Double number three is in the Western Hemisphere category at the $1,200 level. Anjali finds this one at pick number 22. She is at 9200 Jonathan is at 21600 and Jack's at 1800 and she wagers 8000 Girl, we like it. I like it. it. I mean, you could have bet it all. That would have gotten you a little bit closer, but I'm okay with it because it's like... Maybe That's you know if bold. if you get it wrong, yeah. you want to yeah, stick around you, you for final. Still, yeah, like have a have yeah have a shot. And bet, betting it all isn't going to catch up to first place anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with you giving yourself some face there. Whatever, but she makes a great move. Gets the clue for 647 miles. This westernmost of Canada's three territories shares a straight line border with Alaska, and she takes her time. I know for me, I was like. I always mix up whether Yukon or Northwest Territory is farther west. Mm-hmm. But she gets it correct with what is the Yukon. Yep. Northwest Territory has Northwest right there in the name. <laughs> right. But there is something more Northwest mm-hmm. than Northwest Territory. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jonathan's at 27,200, but it is not a lock game because Anjali is at 18,800, Jack's at 2,600, and we have the final Jeopardy category, 19th century Supreme Court decisions. And the clue, the first self-evident truth in the Declaration of Independence was quoted and found not to apply to this plaintiff. Jack has responded correctly. Uh, who is Scott? Uh, Dred Scott, which Mayim notes, this case is the decision considered the worst in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, where they said that whether free or enslaved, black people were not and could never be U.S. citizens. Ugh. Anyway, yeah. Jack is Jack is correct, and he's wagered 2600 That brings him up to 5200 Anjali tried who is madison um didn't didn't get the connection there and she's wagered eighteen thousand, which if she'd been correct would have gotten her up to thirty six thousand eight hundred. Yeah. but uh but she misses this one so she drops down to 800 she'll finish in third place and Jonathan has responded, who is Dred Scott? So he is correct. Uh, he's wagered 10,500, which is a cover bet and a bit, which brings him up to 37,700 and gives him his eighth win. Yep. Now on Thursday, we have the contestants Holly Van Leeuwen, a writer and editor originally from Pittston, Pennsylvania. Aaron Conningsby a product manager from Redmond, Washington, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose eight-day cash winnings total $193,800. We get the Jeopardy round categories word puzzles. This is the way. Familiar-sounding trios. Peasant under glass. Sports books. And time to fall into autumn. Peasant under glass, I think, is like wordplay related to pheasant under glass is that like 
Did you have a different take on that? I have no idea. I've yeah. never heard pheasant under glass either. Pheasant under glass is a poultry dish, generally composed of the breast of pheasant with shallots and a reduced wine sauce. I have never Says eaten pheasant in my life. Wikipedia. I'm not sure if I've ever eaten pheasant in my life. And honestly, when I googled pheasant under glass, I expected to see taxidermy. So, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are learning. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's, it's a weird category title, but okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have I've gone full basic fall girl, so I, I liked the time to fall into autumn category. That was that was fun. That was fun. It was, yeah. yeah, it's just fall stuff, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in the sports books category at the four hundred dollar level. Erin finds it at the fourteenth pick. Uh, she's at eighteen hundred to Jonathan's twenty two hundred and Holly's one thousand. And Erin wagers a thousand only. And gets the clue. The basis for a movie and TV series, this bestseller, is subtitled A Town, A Team, and a Dream. Um, and she knows that that is Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Another thing now, I've never seen. Oh, it's... I think we've talked about this on the podcast yeah. multiple times. <laughs> I like Friday Night Lights. Yeah. I think it's been demoted, though, to, like, every, you know, like the <laughs> second most heartwarming coach... <laughs> In a recent TV series. Is it re- it's not mm, yeah, recent since anymore, Ted though. Lasso, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's not recent, yeah. Yeah, not at all, right? The movie had, like, James Vanderbeek, the Dawson's Creek guy, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, I don't know, 15 oh. years old, more. Yeah, it's been a while now. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Aaron has the lead at 6,000. Jonathan's at 4,800. Holly's at 3,200. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories, History... The Book of Who, Epidemiology, Five Letter Foods, Spoken Words and Classic Songs. They are going to be looking for the artist. And OI, in quotation marks. That's O-I. Mm-hmm. You could put an O-Y in quotation marks and it would be pronounced the same. So thought we needed then, a little clarification there. True. The Five Letter flu- Foods category at the $2,000 level. Ah, uh, <laughs> this type of pear <laughs> is also an alternate name for the Plantagenet dynasty. That's Anjou. Indeed. I also yep. talked about that yep. <laughs> in uh, my discussion of English royal houses and uh, the Plantagenets. Uh, yes, and I think that you had a, a quiz question about the pear. About pears. About I believe the pear, I did. And I missed it. Yep. I believe I did. Yes, that sounds correct. Daily Double number two is in the history category. At the $2,000 level, Erin finds it. She's at 10000 over Jonathan's 9200 and Holly's 5200 and she wagers 1000 Uh And she gets a clue. In 1558, England lost this port city, its last possession in France. And she gets that correct with what is Calais. I was looking up how to pronounce Calais because I was quite sure I'd heard various pronunciations. And, I, and I'm right because, you know... Brits are going to anglicize, so right. they're like, they're going to say yes. Yeah, yeah, Callus or Calais uh, or Calais. Uh, you can, if you've heard different pronunciations of that, it's because it's because different people are Brits taking Brit, you know, different different approaches to how we pronounce words that are originally French. And daily double number three is in the oi category at the sixteen hundred dollar level, and Jonathan finds it at the twentieth pick. 
He has 13,600 to Aaron's 11,000 and Holly's 5,200, and he wagers 2,600 and gets the clue. In his funeral oration, Pericles used this rhyming term, Greek for the many, and uh, he knows that is hoi polloi. My random little pet peeve, <laughs> my, my only one, uh, <laughs> is that hoi means the, and so the hoi polloi is one of those um redundant phrases where people don't realize that they're um being redundant being redundant because they're being redundant with a language uh that they don't know um Mm. uh so at the end of the double jeopardy round jonathan is up to twenty thousand six hundred. he he took control of that the latter half of double jeopardy and just got himself out to a huge lead aaron Mm -hmm. is at eleven thousand and holly is at six thousand They get the final Jeopardy category, World Geography, and the clue, this country of 16,600 square miles has a possession that's more than 50 times as large. Uh, Holly wagered nothing and wrote, what is the United Kingdom? And that is incorrect at this point. I'm not sure how big the United Kingdom is, but at some point they had a lot of holdings that were very large, but that's no longer true. Aaron got it correct with what is Denmark, of course, referring to Greenland. Uh, she wagered 8,200, brought her up to 19,200. And Jonathan also got it correct with what is Denmark. He wagered 1,500, which was a cover bet, which also Aaron accounted for with her wagering. If he had gotten it wrong, he would have dropped to uh, 19,100, so she would have gotten ahead. So good wagering mm-hmm. uh, yes. all around. But Jonathan does win his ninth game. Yep. I feel like this... Uh this final Jeopardy was more accessible uh, than it would have been a few years ago due to the president trying to trying to buy Greenland sure. a while back. I feel like that. Sure. I don't know. That's uh that that is how I really sort of uh, cemented the knowledge that that's uh, Denmark's territory. Right. Yeah. Right. Not that I am a fan of defending any particular politician, but especially that one. The United Mm -hmm. States has tried to purchase Greenland many times Mm. throughout history. Well, at least throughout the last hundred years. It is a strategic, strategically uh, useful place in the North Atlantic and the Arctic. Yep. Because you don't really think about it when you look at a two-dimensional map, but you can get to Russia pretty quick from Greenland if you just go Mm. over the top of the world. Ah, yes. All right. That's a, that's a fair point. So on Friday, October 22, we have the contestants Rudy Fernandez-Diepa, an investment manager from Tampa, Florida, Leah Zarek, a graduate student from Vista, California, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose nine-day cash winnings total $215,900. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, what's in a geographic name, popping out pop culture, the OED speaks Canadian, Pearls of Wisdom, Cello, and Is It Me You're Looking For? Leah had a very charming tweet about the $200 level of Is It Me You're Looking For? Um, The clue there was, I'm wearing a red and white striped shirt and I'm stuck in a kid's picture book. Are you looking for me? And she rang in and said, who is Waldo? Or maybe she said, what is Waldo? And she tweeted that she only realized in retrospect that it was the perfect opportunity to respond, where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Yeah. 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 
That's okay. You can't think of it in the moment, right? Yeah, having the presence of mind to do that in the actual game would would be next level. It, it's yeah. fully optional, Leia, but I but I enjoyed the tweet. Mm-hmm. We had a triple stumper in the cello category. I was I was miffed that they left it for later. I kept wanting them to go to the cello category. Uh, the six hundred dollar level. The clue was, the uncrowned king of the cello, David Popper, has a work titled this, What You'd Sing Under the Window of Your Beloved. And that was a triple stumper, understandably, because that's a serenade. I imagine it was confusing because, one, cellos don't sing. Mm-hmm. And also, a serenade is, like, capital S, serenade as a genre of music. It's simply, like, evening music. Mm. It's just light. A light chamber piece i I mean i realized we use the term serenading when you are singing under the window of your beloved but it's not those those definitions are not the same Mm -hmm. in regard to capital s serenade as opposed Mm -hmm. to the verb to serenade yeah yeah i think that that clue was a little misleading yeah also the 400 hundred dollar clue again yep i knew you'd be mad about this one I know that it, now I'm I'm kind of okay with it because the clue specifies this Baroque composer and Bach's sons are classified in the classical era. So I'm less angry about this one, but still, Johann Sebastian Bach was one of multiple well-known successful composers named with Bach. With the last name Bach, yes. We had another triple stumper in that category, also at the $1,000 level asking us to name the British cellist who was portrayed in the film Hillary and Jackie and whose life was cut short by MS at age 42. Nobody knew that was Jacqueline Dupre. Mm-hmm. Jacqueline? Ja- uh, ja- I think it's, well, British, so they would say Jacqueline. Yeah. Right. Yep. I, uh, I, ha- I, had, I had a music teacher who always pronounced it Jacqueline, but he, but he also pronounced things in unnecessarily exotic ways so yeah they do uh, that yeah daily double number one is in the what's in a geographic name category at the thousand dollar level rudy finds it at pick number 22 he's at 2600 jonathan's at 3600 and lee is at 5200 and he wagers a thousand you should you should bet it all there yeah bet it all he gets the clue the p in pakistan comes from this region the name of a Pakistani province and a state of India, and he gets that correct with what is Punjab. Punjab and Kashmir, the, mm-hmm. the regions of dispute. I recently got to educate my uh, knowledge bowl class about the fact that one of the major conflicts in the world is India versus Pakistan. Mm. Really, none of them had heard that before, and I was like, yeah, yeah. They both have nuclear weapons because the other one has nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a big deal. Yep. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jonathan is in second place at forty eight hundred. Leia mm. is at six thousand, and Rudy is at forty two hundred. It's a very close game, and uh, Jonathan is not in the lead. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. You say you want a revolution, puzzles and games, the author's characters, planetary science, actors and accents. And metaphors, spelled F-O-R, F-O-R in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. I really liked the actors and accents category. Yeah, that was fun. The $2,000 level 
was a uh, unfortunate miss for Rudy. Before lending his voice to many Pixar projects, this New Englander did one of the few actual Boston accents on Cheers. Uh, Rudy got in and probably just couldn't quite remember exactly what his last name was uh, and said, who's Radcliffe? Mm -hmm. Uh, But Jonathan got in with who's Ratzenberger. That's John Ratzenberger, who didn't just do many Pixar projects, did every Pixar project. Mm. Up until Soul. Yeah. Wow. I thought that the author's characters category, almost all the questions or clues were fairly hard, I thought. I mean, I'm on record as not a big fan of Wuthering Heights, um, but at the $400 level, the doomed Francis Earnshaw, mom of the less doomed Harriton Earnshaw, uh, that's Emily Bronte, and the reference is to Wuthering Heights. Love that book. <laughs> and like, Francis, Francis Earnshaw and Harriton Earnshaw, looking at like the Wikipedia list of characters, like, that's the like one, two, three, four, five, six, hit seventh, seventh on the list. Right. So well, yeah, most, but- mostly it's like, do you recognize the surname Earnshaw? Right. That's what it is. Do you yeah. recognize Earnshaw? Right. Like, you don't have to worry about the first names. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I think like for a $400 level, like sure. I would expect like, a first name of a major character, you know? Right, like Heathcliff, right? right. Like, you'd have, yeah. I, I get that. And then you also had to remember which Bronte it is. Right. Ugh. Oh my gosh, <laughs> remembering which Bronte is which. Uh, if you're gonna take Bach, maybe you should just take Bronte. Yes. Amen. Anyway. <laughs> this is this is the hill I will die on. Yep, 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 yep. That sounds fine. Anyway, uh, both of our daily doubles are pretty early in the round, and the first one is in that, or the you know daily double number two, the first of the round, is in that actors and accents category at the $800 level, and Leia finds it as the fourth pick. She has $7,600. She's trailing Jonathan by just $400. Rudy's down at $2,200. She wagers $5,000, uh, which I love. Love that bold mm-hmm. wager. And she gets mm-hmm. the clue, Jonathan Groff from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, worked up a posh English accent for this Broadway role in Hamilton. It seems she does not especially know Hamilton, and I wonder if maybe she's focusing in on the fact that he's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, because she guesses who is Benjamin Franklin. That is not correct. Benjamin Franklin does not appear in Hamilton, and indeed, the only reference to Philadelphia is like one passing reference to the Liberty Bell. Uh, the correct response here is King George the Third. Yes. Daily double number three is just three picks later. Uh, Leia finds it as well. Unfortunately, she took that big hit, uh, so she is now down to thirty-eight hundred against Jonathan's eight thousand and Rudy's fourteen hundred, and she only wagers eighteen hundred. Again, I would say. I mean, I guess there's a lot of money on the board still, but like. You took a big hit. This is your chance to kind of make it back up as much as you can. But maybe she's feeling a little gun shy. It's in the say you say you want a revolution category at the $1,600 level. The clue is nearly 30 years after the 1989 one in Czechoslovakia, Armenia had its own revolution named for this soft fabric. And she gets that correct with what is velvet. Mm-hmm. You could you could see the re- regret for the wager as the as the clue came up. 
So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Jonathan's at 19,600, Leia's at 4,800, Rudy's at 3,800. So Jonathan has a lot game. And the final Jeopardy category is 1970s Top 40 Hits. The clue is seeing a poster for a production of Cyrano de Bergerac in a seedy Paris hotel and ladies of the evening nearby inspired this hit. Rudy has it correct with what is Roxanne. He's wagered everything. Uh, That brings him up to 7,600. Leia also has it correct with what is Roxanne, but she's wagered zero. um, So she's going to finish in third place and Rudy's going to be in second. Jonathan missed this one. He guessed what is Honky Tonk Women. And uh, he wagered 5,400. So that drops him down to 14,200. But, you know, it doesn't matter. He had a lock game. So uh, he is our champion. And we'll see him again on Monday. Yes. Ten games. Ten game champion. Ten game champion. Ten game champion. I think his timing is unfortunate coming after a 38 game champion. Because there is still a lot of attention on Madame Odio. As well, there should be. Like, he is, you know, broke records. He is the second highest number of regular season wins, right? Third highest winnings and all that. But Jonathan Fisher has now got not only easily secured himself a place in the next tournament of champions, but he is swiftly approaching the top 10. Mm-hmm. I think I think Seth Wilson is number 10 with 12 wins and like 280,000 or something like that in winnings. Mm-hmm. So if Jonathan wins another two games at his current trajectory, he'll pass Seth Wilson. And be in like the top 10 all time. Like he's he's knocking on the door there. Yep. And man. So yeah. So we'll see him next week and we'll see if he, uh, I mean, if he wins out next week, he, you know, that's 15 wins. That's number four, number five. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's up there. That's a very impressive run. Yeah. This is the break in the middle of the episode uh, where we remind you we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash potent potables. We are we are getting very close to being able to pay an editor to uh, take some of the editing work off of Kyle's plate because, you know, teachers in a pandemic with all their abundant spare time. Um <laughs> So that's that's our goal. That's what we're that's what we're looking to do with our income from Patreon. Um, so if you have a few bucks to throw our way, we would appreciate it. Uh, we have some content on there. I have I have an idea for a, like a goofy little video I'm going to throw on there after the deep dive related to the deep dive this evening, but I don't want to say too much about that. And we're and we're you know going to try and try and get some more on there at, at some point, but. We, uh, we really appreciate everyone who is supporting us on Patreon, including our new Patreon supporter, Leanne Cromer. Cromer? Crom- I, don't, I don't know. Leanne. Thanks, Leanne. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. We also got some uh, some communications from some of our listeners. <laughs> um, I, I completely missed uh, in um, there was like a flood of spam and like phishing emails a while back. Um, and I missed a very helpful and uh, thoughtful email from Tim Eastwood talking about infinite jest and giving me some, uh, some, some tips and some uh, thoughts about kind of how to understand what was going on and what I was reading. And I really appreciate it, Tim. That was, that was uh, very, very, very informative. Um, so thank you. Also, Kyle is wrong about Triscuits and I am right. And apparently everyone needs the to come out and defend have these spoken. Defend these like violent crackers <laughs> that assault your tongue when you eat them. 
they do have texture. If you're, not, if I guess, if you're not into texture, texture. everything has texture, Emily. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, I like we texture. Got, I don't have to recover from. <laughs> um, we got. We, I've got. I've got Kelly Young on my side in the in the Great Trisket War of twenty twenty one. Signing up on Twitter. We got. We got an email from Josh about your Trisket blasphemy. People are are more enthusiastic about Triscuits than about anything else we've ever talked about. So, I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> Finally great. happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, please please keep sending us emails and tweeting at us. It just it just gives us such joy um, does, to know that really. you're enjoying our silly podcast. And as always, uh, we ask for your Patreon support, but we also know there are more important things in the world than us and our Jeopardy analysis and uh, Trisket bickering. Um, so if you have limited resources, um, we would prefer you put them to uh, some of the bigger and more pressing things in the world. We like to point people towards blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe. Okay. All right. Do you have deep dive guesses? I do, because you said you had a silly little video, which led me away from a number of things, because um, I was like... Maybe she's talking about the Arab Spring, but I don't feel like a silly little video. Oh would yeah, go along no, with I did. I did Spring. give a big clue, didn't I? Um, okay, so my first guess: Are you talking about Balaam's ass or I'm, I'm asses not. in general? I'm not. That's a, that would be a great topic for a silly little video, though. Yes. Okay. Uh, this one may may or may not be silly. Uh, Henry w- Wadsworth Longfellow. I'm nope. We did okay. we did some poetry recently. I try not to inflict poetry on you too too often. I don't I don't hate poetry. It just for whatever reason is like it does not stick in my mind. Um, okay, finally, you are you talking about meatloaf? Uh, no, I'm not talking about meatloaf. Oh, but that'd be perfect. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Friday's game, Double Jeopardy, the puzzles and games category, the twelve hundred dollar level, the puzzle alliteratively known as This Man's Revenge. Mm adds extra rows and has no fixed centerpieces and nobody attempted that clue the response they were looking for is erno rubik a four by four rubik's cube is a rubik's revenge so i uh i learned to do a rubik's cube um after i was no longer studying for jeopardy somehow that that was a thing that i (laughs) Okay. <laughs> that I decided to do with my brain for a little bit. Um, and um, so I thought, you know, we had a Rubik's Cube triple stumper. Um, I thought I could learn a little bit about Mr. Rubik and his cube. And then I was like, oh, and I can like make a little video of how I solve a Rubik's Cube and um, and put that on our Patreon. That would be fun. So can you solve a Rubik's Cube, Kyle? Have you ever... Have you ever done that? I have never solved a Rubik's Cube. I have okay. not taken the time to figure the pattern. Yep. We can get into that as as the deep dive goes on. But anyway, Ru- Rubik's Cubes, you know, like Rubik, the Rubik's Cube craze, a little bit about cubing. That's uh, <laughs> that's what we're doing today. <laughs> so Erno Rubik was born in Budapest, Hungary in July of 1944. He uh, is still alive today. He has lived all of his life in Hungary. His father, Erno Rubik, was a flight engineer, and his mother, Magdolna, was a poet. 
Rubik studied sculpture at the Technical University in Budapest from 1962 to 1967, and architecture at the Academy of Applied Arts and Design, also in Budapest, from 1967 to 1971. Uh, He went on to become a professor of architecture at the Budapest College of Applied Arts, and it was during his time there that he he made the designs and uh, completed the first working prototype of the Rubik's Cube in 1974. He applied for a patent on the puzzle in 1975. His father had been through that process, so he was kind of familiar with uh, the patent process. The first cubes he made were made of blocks of wood and rubber bands. And uh, kind of the big engineering challenge was solving the structural problem of moving the parts independently without the entire mechanism falling apart. Hmm. He showed his prototype to his class and his students liked it very much. And he realized that because of the simple structure of the cube, it could be manufactured relatively easily. And he thought it might have appeal to a larger audience. After he had his patent, he set out to find a manufacturer in Hungary. Um, He had difficulty with that due to the planned economy of communist Hungary at the time, Um, but he eventually was able to find a small company that worked with plastic and made chess pieces and get them to manufacture cubes for him. Uh, The cube was originally known in Hungary as the Magic Cube, and the first test batches of the Magic Cube were produced in late 1977 and released in Budapest toy shops. The Magic Cube was held together with interlocking plastic pieces that prevented the puzzle from you know, coming apart as you manipulated it. And then with Rubik's permission, a businessman named Tibor Lachi took a cube to the Nuremberg Toy Fair in February 1979 in Germany in an attempt to popularize the invention. Uh, It was noticed there by Seven Towns founder Tom Kramer, and they signed a deal with Ideal Toys in September 1979 to release the Magic Cube worldwide. Ideal Toys didn't care for the name Magic Cube. It wasn't distinctive enough. Uh, So that is where it got the name Rubik's Cube. Uh, They renamed it after the inventor to give it a more more distinct and trademarkable name. That's nice. Yeah. The puzzle made its international debut at the Toy Fairs of London, Paris, Nuremberg, and New York in January and February of 1980. And at the end of 1980, Rubik's Cube won a German Game of the Year special award and similar awards for best toy in the United Kingdom, France, and the U.S. And the Rubik's Cube craze was off and running. It's estimated that from 1980 to 1983, around 200 million Rubik's Cubes were sold worldwide. In March 1981, a speed cubing championship organized by the Guinness Book of World Records was held in Munich. Uh, the winners were Ronald Brinkman and Juri Froschel with times of 38 seconds. I'll sort of wrap up like the, the, the Rubik part here, but then I'm going to talk about the culture around Rubik's Cubes after this. Um, so Rubik has gone on after inventing the Rubik's Cube to do a lot of work in the promotion of science and education. He's involved with several organizations such as Beyond Rubik's Cube, the Rubik Learning Initiative, and the Judith Polgar Foundation, um, all of which aim to engage students in science, math, and problem solving at a young age. He's also, um, he's married, his wife's name is Agnes, and they have four children. But anyway, back to, back to like this, you know, this worldwide like Rubik's Cube fad of the 1980s. The Rubik's Cube was originally advertised as having over 3 billion combinations, but only one solution. 
that is a gross underestimate. <laughs> um, <laughs> depending on how combinations are counted, the actual number of ways that you can you know, you, you, that your Rubik's cube can be arranged is like maybe forty three quintillion. Hmm. Yeah. More if you were to include the permutations that you can't get to by twisting the cube. You have to take it apart and put it back together in a different way. Also more if you consider the orientation of the cube to be part of the permutation, which I do not, right? Sure. You know, if it's if it's exactly the same, but the other way up, you know, is that is that a separate permutation or no? I would say no. Um, but, you know, but you can <laughs> add factors of 10 in those ways. In 2007... Daniel Kunkel and Gene Cooperman, I'm guessing about how to pronounce the first guy's name, uh, used computer search methods to demonstrate that any three by three by three Rubik's Cube configuration can be solved in under 20 in 26 moves or fewer. In 2008, Thomas Rokiki lowered that number to 22 moves. It's possible to solve any Rubik's Cube in 22 moves or fewer. And in July 2010, a team of researchers, including Rokiki, working with Google, proved that the so-called God's number is 20. You can solve any Rubik's Cube in 20 moves. Numerous books came out with Rubik's Cube instructions, especially during that first Rubik's Cube craze. Um, David Singmaster's Notes on Rubik's Magic Cube was published in 1980. Patrick Bossert was, I think, like a teenager at the time and wrote a book called You Can Do the Cube. Uh, in 1981, the Museum of Modern Art in New York exhibited a Rubik's Cube. Uh, and at the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, a six-foot cube was put on display. I'm sure that everyone is remembering my World's Fair deep dive and being like, wait, Emily, I didn't think there was one in 1982 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, you're right. It was a specialized exposition. And as I'm sure everyone remembers, um, the specialized expositions are... Um, <laughs> like offset from the proper world's fairs. Yes, um, everyone remembers that. <laughs> yes. ABC television developed a cartoon show called Rubik the Amazing Cube, which ran for like 12 or 13 episodes and had a little <laughs> talking Rubik's Cube. Yes. Um, in June 1982, the first Rubik's Cube World Championship took place in Budapest, uh, and it was won by Min Tai, who was a Vietnamese student from Los Angeles, uh, completing the Rubik's Cube with a time of 22.95 seconds. That was the only competition recognized as official until the second round of Rubik's Cube uh, craze started in 2003. The popularity of the Rubik's Cube waned by about 1983. You know, they were, they were available, but they weren't a fad in the same way. But in early the early 2000s, uh, interest began growing again. Um, sales doubled from 2001 to 2003, and uh, the 2003 World Rubik's Games Championship was the first speed cubing tournament since 1982, which led to the formation of the World Cube Association in 2004. There's some speculation that part of the kind of revival and in interest was due to the advent of um, like YouTube and similar internet video sites where people who had this hobby could video themselves and sort of share their strategies in a, in a you know, video uh, format. Rubik's patent expired in 2000, at which point other brands of cubes started appearing, especially from Chinese companies. Um, many of these other brands of cubes have been engineered for speed um, and are favored by speed cubers. 
we have a couple of them at my house. They uh, mm. are are pretty smooth. I like Ooh, them. Smooth yeah. action. Yep. There have been some patent and trademark kinds of lawsuits and things. In particular, um, before Rubik invented his cube, in March 1970, a man named Larry D. Nichols invented a two by two by two uh, cube and patented it under the name Puzzle with pieces rotatable in groups. It was held together by magnets, and he assigned his patent to his employer, uh, which sued Ideal Toys in 1982. Ideal lost the patent infringement suit and appeal. Then in 1986, the appeals court affirmed the judgment that the pocket cube, the two by two by two Rubik's pocket cube, did infringe the Nichols patent, but the judgment against the like the standard Rubik's cube, the three by three by three, was overturned. A little bit about solving Rubik's cubes. In Rubik's Cubers parlance, um, a memorized sequence of moves uh, that does a particular desired thing to the cube is called an algorithm. Many algorithms are designed to transform only a small, specific part of the cube without interfering with other parts that have already been solved. Other algorithms do something quickly and easily to the cube but have the side effect of changing other parts of the cube. So often you'll start with that second kind where you're, you know, doing kind of the the quick, easy stuff, but it's, you know, but it's messing up the whole rest of the cube. And then you have your solved part and start going to the more complicated algorithms to solve the remaining pieces. Mm-hmm. There's a notation for algorithms um, with each face of the cube assigned a letter. So F, B, U, D, L, R, right? Front, back, up, down, left, right. And then when you're notating a particular algorithm, the letter by itself is a quarter turn clockwise. If you put a little apostrophe or a prime symbol by the letter, that means it's a quarter turn counterclockwise. Uh, you use X, Y, and Z for rotating the entire cube. Um, there's, a, there's some other things about notation, but those are, those are kind of the big ones. Speed cubing is the practice of trying to solve a Rubik's Cube in the shortest time possible. Um, and since 2003, the winner of a competition is determined by taking the average time of the middle three of five attempts. You know, because the the cubes are, like, scrambled and, you know, randomized in a way that, like, you can have outlying especially fast or slow times. Hmm. So uh, so the, the middle three of... The, the average of the middle three out of five is the way that they try and get the outlier outlying situations out the, but the single best time of all tries is also recorded and in addition to the main three by three by three event the world cube association also holds other kinds of events where the cube is solved in different ways um, blindfolded solving uh, where you look at the cube memorize it and then solve it blindfolded multiple blindfolded solving where you look at a number of cubes and then solve them all blindfolded, solving the cube using one hand, um, solving it in the fewest possible moves, a whole bunch of other stuff. The world record time for solving a 3x3x3 Rubik's Cube is 3.47 seconds. That record, I know, (laughs) Uh, that record was set on November 24, 2018 by Yusheng Du in the Wuhu Open. That's, That's for a single solve. The world record average solve time is 5.48 seconds. That was set in 2021, so this year, by Rei Hang Shu. 
and apologies for my attempts to pronounce Chinese names. And, you know, there, there's like, there, there are a gajillion records to look at, but those are, those are kind of the, you know, the big main event ones. There are different variations of Rubik's Cubes with more layers. There's the two by two by two pocket cube or mini cube, um, the one that there was the patent lawsuit uh, about. Uh, there's the standard three by three by three. The four by four by four cube is the Rubik's Revenge. That's the one the Jeopardy clue was about. A cube with five on each side uh, is the Professor's Cube. And that's the that's the biggest one that the official Rubik's brand makes. But other brands have uh, have started making much bigger cubes. The 17 by 17 by 17 over the top cube um, was uh, came out in 2011 and was until December 2017, the largest and most expensive commercially sold cube. It cost more than $2,000. A working design for a 22 by 22 by 22 cube exists and was demonstrated in January 2016, a uh, 33 by 33 by 33 in December 2017. But like these the enormous cubes take hours and hours to solve. Right. Um yeah. But for, you know, for people who have this hobby, you know, having like a big cube and like, you know, people make like time-lapse videos of themselves solving the things. So there are other kinds of variations too. Uh, I don't know what all of these are. Rubik's Magic, uh, Rubik's 360, and Rubik's Twist. It's like a slidey puzzle. It looks like it's two-dimensional, I think. Or some... Oh, no. Rectangles? I don't know. I'm confused. Anyway, the the Rubik's company has made a, a bunch of other kind of, you know, sort of slidey or like spatial puzzles. And then they have some electronic uh, things that, that are kind of related puzzles. Rubik's Revolution and Slide are a couple of those. And then there are other shapes of twisty puzzles, including uh, Pyraminx is the tetrahedron shape, like with four triangular faces. Um, there's an octahedron called the Skube Diamond, a dodecahedron called the Megaminx, and the uh, and an icosahedron called the Dogic. Dogic? I don't know. And there are also slidey puzzles that change shape. Um, all kind of inspired by um, and like kind of playing off the sort of iconic visual um, of the of the Rubik's cube. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much what I've got. That's uh, a <laughs> deep dive into Rubik and his cube. That is um, a lot about the cube. Mm-hmm. Every week, I'm like, well, there can't be that much to talk about with this topic, <laughs> and then there is. But um, there always is. There always is. So, are you ready for a quiz? Yeah. I All think right. I am. Okay. Our quizzes have six questions, and the Rubik's Cube has six faces, each with a corresponding color. So I thought we would do uh, a question uh, inspired by each color of the Rubik's Cube. Okay. Yeah, which I've put in roughly rainbow order. Except okay. that one, one face of the Rubik's Cube is white. So All we'll right, put that one right at the on end. Me. All right. Question one. Red. Cherries in the Snow is an iconic pinky red lipstick color created by what cosmetics company, which was founded in 1932 by Joseph and Charles Revson and Charles Lachman? The color has been sold since 1953 and is name-checked in media from Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar to 
uh, the recent series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I don't have any particular, like, one over another kind of leaning. So, okay, is it, I mean, based on the names, is it Revlon? It is Revlon, yes. Okay. Uh, founded by the Revson brothers, uh, and then Charles Lachman invested... Um, and so they uh, kind of combined their names to name the company Revlon. Um, Not Revlock. I, I know. It would make more <laughs> sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I keep coming across references to Cherries in the Snow. And it's, you know, kind of this, like, I think I think it did go out of production at some point and then was, like, kind of brought back by popular demand. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you can still buy Cherries in the Snow lipstick. I think they started making a nail polish with that name first, but the lipstick is kind of the, the one that I that I hear about as like you know kind of iconic in the same way that like Chanel Number no. Five is. Yeah. All right. Question two. Orange. Otto the orange, an anthropomorphized orange wearing a blue hat and blue pants, has been since 1980 the mascot of what university? Um, <laughs> I. Don't think I've ever seen this before. I'm just picturing this absolutely horrid thing in my brain. Um, but if it's orange, I'm going to go with Syracuse. You are correct. Uh, yes, Syracuse <laughs> University. The orange, the, the Syracuse orange uh, is what those teams are called now. Um, formerly the Orange Men or Orange Women. And uh, Otto the Orange was rolled out in 1980 after a... Native American character mascot was discontinued uh, in 1978, subsequent to a student petition. So <laughs> they've had to change. They've had to change quite a bit because <laughs> also like the conversations about using Native Americans as mascots is not in any way new. Uh, not at all. 1977 petition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And Otto the Orange is... <laughs> <laughs> he's he's uh he's an especially goofy looking mascot i think he's just a big just a big orange, big orange. just a big orange i um, mean mr met's just a big baseball yeah that's right? true mascots are terrible <laughs> yes oh man another um, hot take here I, here I, here it comes would you like to would you like to expand on that mascots handfuls are terrible of handfuls of tweets about to tell me why mascots are okay <laughs> oh goodness all right you're at 20 points question three it's a pop music question so you know we'll see yellow is the title of a song by what british rock band fronted by chris martin i know the song oh chris martin oh, i do know this oh no it's not coming to mind, but I know Chris Martin. I don't know. I'm I'm gonna pass on it. All right. It is Coldplay. Coldplay. Yeah. Coldplay. Yes. I knew that. Uh, today I learned in an interview with Howard Stern, um, Chris Martin admitted that the word yellow was a placeholder. And that he had tried to change it to something else, but the word yellow just sounded right. So he left it in, even though he did not have any meaning in mind nice. <laughs> for, for that, for that word or, you know, what, like it, 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 it was just something that he put in the song until he came up with a better word. But yellow is, uh, is what we ended up with. Yeah, that's what it yep. is. Nice. Yeah. Um, so you're at, 
Yeah, you're at 20 points. And uh, question four, green. When copper, brass, or bronze are exposed to the elements or treated with acid, a green coating forms. This can be seen, for example, on the Statue of Liberty. And it has historically been manufactured for use in pigments and also as an industrial fungicide. What is the traditional name of that pigment from the uh, from the green patina that forms on copper? The traditional name is from the old French for green of Greece. Uh, is that verdigris? It is verdigris. Oof. And uh, in uh, in modern French, it means something more like green of gray. But mm-hmm. that also, I feel like, fits uh, with with the like the that green, you know, kind of dull green patina. But apparently, it was it was uh, like a Grecian green originally. Is what they what they named that. Um, and verdigris, um, like the the pigment that they would use verdigris for, um, apparently in oil painting. It would initially go on bluish green and then turn to kind of a rich like foliage green over the course of about a month, which is, you know, interesting, interesting to know as you think about the artistic process of, you know, people who were, you know, artists who were working with it. Uh, It's fallen out of use as more stable green pigments have become available understandably so <laughs> to have to like paint with bluish green and be like it'll be the color i mean in like four weeks or so <laughs> if it's not i yeah. guess i'll have to try again <laughs> all right yeah all right so you're at 30 question five blue i hope you don't have to sit down in your thinking chair and think for too long blue along with being color is an adorable little dog from children's television. First, the show Blue's Clues, and more recently, the reboot Blue's Clues and You. Uh, The original show started with um, one live-action host, and then he departed and they replaced him with another one. And the reboot has yet a third live-action host interacting with the animated world and characters and with the viewers. Name any of those hosts. Just what we call them, not, you don't have to know, like, the full name of the actor. Oh, man, I never watched Blue's Clues. Uh, what was that guy? He was just on Stephen Colbert. Steve. Yes, Steve okay. was the first host. Okay, <laughs> damn it. Yeah. I never watched that show. <laughs> yep. Okay. Blue's Clues, it's, it's really um, interesting to hear about, like, the development of Blue's Clues and, you know, it's very much based on like, you know, child development research. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cool show to learn a little bit about. And they would, they would intentionally play the same episode in its time slot Monday through Friday, because preschoolers at that age learn from repetition and like crave repetition. Plus, you know, then you can (laughs) make one show per week instead of needing a different one for every day. But anyway, yeah, Steve was the first host uh, Joe was the next one, and then Josh is the host for the reboot. And there was that recent viral video of Steve, which if any of you listeners have not encountered that at all, it's worth going to look up because it was a b- little bit of a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. All right. So you are at 40 points. And our final category, the corresponding Rubik's Cube color will be white. Uh, but the category okay. is idioms. Ooh, I am a bit of an idiom myself. Uh, I'll bet 
30. Okay. For 70 points. This idiom refers to a possession, often a gift, that has limited usefulness and is burdensome to maintain. First used in the 1600s, it has subsequently been adopted for use in reference to swaps or uh, like rummage sales of unwanted gifts. Uh, what is this idiom that refers to a possession which is at best a mixed blessing? Uh, I'm going to guess that's a white elephant. That is a white elephant. So you have 70 points. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, you're welcome. White elephant has been um, an idiom in English since, or it it first appears in uh, in writing in the 1600s and became popular in the 1800s. Everything I see explains about like, thailand and india and how white elephants were sacred but like they could only be owned by a king and they couldn't work and they're very expensive to maintain and so you know that that it would be like both a blessing and a curse because they're auspicious but you know you have to take care of them but then when you trace down the references all of it goes back to like writing that's coming straight out of the british isles Mm -hmm. um and not from any culture where white elephants are seen as actually, you know, where, where white elephants are, are a cultural thing, right? It's all, it's all British people living in the UK and like, you know, speculating about, mm-hmm. about how the people of India or Thailand or, you know, wherever feel, feel about white elephants. So right. I'm going to call colonialism on this one. Seems like this is probably some, some racism is my guess. Probably. Yeah. Safe to assume. Yep. But yeah, no, that's white elephant is the idiom. So yeah, nice job, Kyle. Thank you. And uh, thanks, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy um, or friends who were on Jeopardy, because a lot of our listeners are uh, former Jeopardy contestants, let them know about our podcast. Yeah. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week. With another week of Jeopardy recaps and a deep dive and quiz. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.